Okay, this Shabbos we have the privilege of reading Parshas Vayigash. You remember last week we left off with our continued somewhat cliffhanger. At the end of last week I uh, shared with you the incredible suggestion of Rav Yoel bin Nun. What was going through Yosef's mind? 22 years he didn't search his father. Yaakov seemingly didn't continue to search for him. What was happening? And what was the nature of last week's Yosef orchestrates what seems to be very uh, vengeful he seems to be uh, punitive towards his brothers, setting them up with the money and setting Binyamin up with the goblet. What exactly was going on? We saw the Ramban said that Yosef was trying to orchestrate his dreams to come true. The dreams were more than just dreams, they were prophecy. Yosef saw them as an expression of God's will for the world. And so he wanted to orchestrate the second dream. The first had come true when the brothers came for provisions and they bowed down. But in the second dream he wanted 11 stars and the sun. Eleven stars include Binyamin. And the son, of course, represents Yaakov, his father. And so he orchestrated a scenario where everyone would come, so his dream would come true, says the Ramban. Says Rav Yobinun, maybe. But perhaps Yosef was very unsure of his father. Why? After all, it was his father who sent him to go check on his brothers when they indeed came upon him, thought about killing him and threw him in the pit and ultimately sold him. And Yosef was in... Mitzrayim all those years, first in the house of Potiphar and then in prison and then rose to greatness. And every day of those 22 years, Yosef thought to himself, maybe my father was part of this plan. Maybe my father helped orchestrate what could have been my demise. After all, Avram expelled Yishmael. Yitzchak expelled Esau. Maybe I'm the brother that my father is expelling. In each generation, there is the brother who's embraced and there's the brother who's expelled. Maybe I'm the expelled uh, brother. Maybe I'm the persona non grata in this family. And he wondered and wondered and wondered until he orchestrated uh, when he kept Binyamin. And when the brother said, look, our father is a mess because of our older brother, because our brother Yosef is no longer. Our father is devastated. Yosef had his answer. He understood. And that's when he gets prepared to reveal. So that brings us to this week's Parsha. Vayigash. Page 250 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, as we always do. Quick overview of the whole parsha, and then I want to study some specific psukim, some specific verses in, uh, in detail. So the parsha begins with the famous words, Vayigash Elav Yehuda Vayomer. Yehuda approaches Yosef and he says, The commentators are all bothered. You know, we tend to take a break between studying the parsha. There was last week's parsha and there's this week's parsha. And we therefore don't read it in succession and we don't see the obvious questions. Just turn back a page. Who's having a conversation at the end of last week's parsha? We studied this last week. Yehuda turns to Yosef and he says, Please, please, we beg you. You can't keep in Yom and keep all of us. What can we say and how can we make ourselves righteous before you? This is God's will. So what do you mean by Yigash Elav Yehuda? Our parsha Vayigash. Yehuda shows courage and bravery and tenacity that he challenges Yosef, the viceroy. He doesn't know as his own brother yet, but he says, you can't keep in Yemen. What do you mean Vayigash Yehuda approached? Yehuda was already talking to him. Vayomer Yehuda. The end of last six... Yehuda's in the middle of a conversation with Yosef. What, is, what do you mean Vayigash Elav Yehuda? The Yorachayim HaKadosh, the Yorachayim Benatar is the one who asked this question. And the Yorachayim answers, he says, and I've shared this with you before, it's just one of my favorite Divrei Torah on the entire Torah. 
so I have to share it with you again. The Orchaim answers, until now Yehuda was speaking through interpreters. Vayigashi love Yehuda is Yehuda saying, Your Honor, may I approach the bench? Until now, Yosef's been at a distance. He's the viceroy. He's royalty. You don't address royalty head on, but rather through an intermediary, through an interpreter. Now Yehuda basically says, I need to speak. Ponim and ponim, I need to be able to see my heart. Vayigashi love Yehuda, says the Orchaim. He set aside the interpreter and he said, Can I speak to you directly? May I approach the bench, Your Honor? But I saw another suggestion. This term, Vayigash Elav, appears three times in Tanakh. We have three individuals who Vayigash. What does the word Vayigash literally mean? To approach. But I would, I would actually, I would define it a little differently. Not only to approach, but Vayigash meaning to step up. Vayigash Elav, Yehuda stood up. He stepped up to the moment. So we have three individuals. The first is... Anyone remember? Avram. Someone say Avram. Good for you. Avram. What does the Pesach say and in what context? Vayigash Avraham Vayomer. Ha'av tispet sadikim rasha. What context is that? When Avram appeals to the Almighty to reconsider his decision to eliminate the people of stone, Avram says, what? How could you do that? Vayigash Avram. Avram steps up. He approaches God. He confronts God. After spet tzaddikim rasha, you're going to get rid of a righteous person with a wicked one. Second one is this morning. Vaygash love. Yehuda steps up. The moment calls, and Yehuda steps up. The third time in Tanakh, not in Chumash, but Tanakh. Anyone know? Is Eliyahu Anavi? Pasuk says in Malachim, Vaygash Eliyahu Anavi Vayomer Hashem Alokei Avram Yitzchak Hayom Yivadaki Ata Elokim BiYisrael. What is the context there? Eliyahu is fighting with Nevi'e Baal. Eliyahu is challenging them to a duel, a spiritual duel. Eliyahu says, you're gods, they're, they're pagans, they're idols, they're worthless, they're nothing. They have no power. Mine is the real God. That expression we use, Hashem Hu Elokim, we culminate Yom Kippur, the peak of Ne'ilah, Hashem Hu Elokim, comes to Eliyahu and Nevi'e at that moment on Hara Carmel, where he says, Hashem Hu Elokim, Mine is the real God. And God shows Himself to be so. So when, when Elio Anavi confronts the Nevi'e Baal, when He confronts those who are distorting Torah, distorting God rather, what does it say? Vayigash Elav Elio Anavi Vayomer. Three times this expression, Vayigash, is used. What do they all have in common? Each of these incidents involved a crisis. There was an urgent situation. There was a moment of truth. And Avram, Yehuda, and Eliyahu distinguish themselves as leaders. They step up. They step forward. Vayigash. Everyone else is watching and pontificating. Everyone else has ideas and telling everyone else what they should do. Everyone else is interpreting. But these three individuals don't stand back and watch. Vayigash. They step forward. They step up out of a crowd. They distinguish themselves and they make a difference. The Ramah, look it up yourselves, it's in Simen Tzadihei. The Ramah in Or Chaim says, you ready for this? This is why this is my favorite Tvar Torah. Says the Ramah, this is not just like a Hasid Shavort. It's in Shulchan Aruch. The Ramah, Simen Tzadihei, quotes from the Rokeach. And he says, how do we begin Shemona Esrei the Amida every single day, three times a day? What do we do? We take three steps forward. Why do we take three steps forward? Says the Rokeach, quoted by the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch, the three steps forward correspond with the three times of Vayigash. 
we step up three times to correspond with the three individuals who stepped up three times. Like Avram, Yehuda, and Elio, we step forward and we remind ourselves our obligation to pray. And I would add more. When we step forward, this Ramah, this Rokeach, when we take those three steps forward in our Amidah and we're about to begin our davening to Hashem, we are reminding ourselves like these three individuals that this conversation, this dialogue, this appeal to the Almighty is not just about me and my needs and my family and my wants and my happiness. But Avram Vayigash, Avram stepped up when he empathized with the suffering of others. When he said, how could you do that to the people of stone? How could you do that? Please, God, have mercy on them. So that first step we take with the Amidah is to remember that my davening is not just for me. I have to care about the suffering of others. The second step we take is like Yehuda. Kol Yisrael arevim That we don't leave someone out to dry. That in our core, we think about and care about our brothers and sisters. And the third, like Eliyahu Anavi, that last, Vayigash, is Kiddush Hashem. Eliyahu Anavi steps up to promote God's name, to help elevate God's reputation in this world. So those three steps, hopefully you'll never dive into Shemun the same way again. Those three steps that we take, the three steps forward, the Ramah, Simit Sadi, Hei, quotes the Rokeach, those three steps we take correspond with the Vayigash love of Avram, of Yehuda, and Eliyahu. When you dive in the Amidah, you're stepping forward on behalf of, like Avraham, caring about justice and righteousness, like Yehuda, caring about Ko Yisrael, our brothers and sisters, and like Eliyahu Navi, caring about Kiddush Hashem, ultimately caring about the Almighty Himself. Okay, that's just the opening three words of the Parsha. So Yehuda steps up and he challenges Yosef and he says, What can we do? We're not leaving our brother here. You told us that we have to bring him down. And Yehuda reviews the whole circumstance with Yosef. It's kind of peculiar, as if Yosef hadn't just lived in himself. Why is Yehuda repeating everything, the conversations in Yosef's demands? Yosef's familiar with it. He's the one who, he's the one who lived it. So you can look at the Mepharshim, they all get into that. Um, and ultimately, um, Yehuda is carrying on. Our father will surely die if he doesn't see the young one. And these are the magic words. Words which have been used homiletically ever since then about uh, Jewish education, caring about every Jewish child, no Jewish child left behind. How could I go up to my father and not have the child with me? So, Yosef couldn't take it anymore. And why could Yosef not take it? According to Rav Yoel Ben-Nun, for a very good reason. Because Yosef had the key information he was seeking. That his father was not part of coordinating this. That his father missed him and longed for him. And he desperately longed to be with his father as well. So what does he do? He cries. And Yosef Yosef turns to his brothers and he says, Ha'ud avi chai. Is my father still alive? We've spoken about this in the past. You could listen on Y.U. Torah or our Shul website. We spoke about it in the past. Why does Yosef frame it? Is my father still alive? What should he have said? Our. Is our father still alive? Why did he say my? The Medrash says based on this, Look at the musr, look at the rebuke, look at the harsh, harsh patch that Yosef gave his brothers. How will we? Right, what happened to the brothers at that moment? Everything came together. 
it's like the 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 layers were peeled away and they saw it, it all came together for them. And it flashed before their eyes what they had done, its consequences, and what will be now. Yosef's rebuke is harsh, except that if you look at the verse, you say, where's Yosef's rebuke? Where's the rebuke? What did he say? So the answer is, you know what the rebuke is? In the words, Avi, my father. What was Yosef telling the brothers? Yehuda's strategy, what was Yehuda's whole argument? I can't go back to my father without my younger brother. He will surely die. And my father means the world to me. I could never contribute to my father's pain. I could never hurt my father. You must give me back my brother. To which Yosef looks and says, Really? You can never hurt your father? Really? You care about your father so much? Really? He's not your father. He's my father. I've never done anything to hurt dad. You did. You threw me in a pit. You sold me into slavery. You broke us up for the last 22 years. He's not your father. He's my father. He's my father. And that's the patch. That's the muster that Yosef gives. But moreover, I suggested once that what Yosef is saying is, Avi is my father who I had a unique relationship. Is our father alive? Means, yeah, we all genetically, biologically descend from this man. Is our collective father who we took vacations with and had long Shabbos meals with and, you know, is our father alive? But that's not what Yosef wants to know. After 22 years, he wants to know, Avi, my father, the one who learned extra with me, the one who got me a special coat, the one who loved me, Avi, is my father, the one who was so affectionate to me, is my father still alive? And then Yosef remarkably, quickly relieves the anguish of his brothers who are unsure of what kind of revenge he might take now. He might have revealed himself and then say, and off with your heads, or here's your punishment, or now you're going to prison, or now you know who I am. But he doesn't. He's amazing and he repeats, um, the brothers were speechless he tells his brothers come close they come close and again he says it's me it's the same old me we play ball in the backyard and we used to beat each other up and we used to, it's the same me don't be sad why God coordinated all of this wow that's an amazing Statement. It's an amazing state of mind. It is an amazing attitude where Yosef tells his brothers that I don't bear a grudge against you because this must have been God's will. God positioned me to be able to help you now with food and so on and so forth. There's so much more to say. We've studied this in the past with all of the Mephoshim, but let's keep going. Paro then joins the world. They, they, they fall on each other's necks. They cry. He and Binyamin in particular, Rashi tells us, the two Bate Mikdash that are destined to exist, they're crying over. Paro joins the welcoming party. Yosef gives gifts. He sends the brothers off and he says, go back and bring our father back. Why does Yosef himself not go? Why can't he go? Paro won't let him go. Paro won't let him go because now there's a question of, and this is actually an underlying theme that's going on in this Parsha. It's the underlying theme of a question that Yosef feels of dual loyalty. Of dual loyalty. Now, Jonathan Pollard's in his 30th year in prison. 30th year in prison. And yet, in this uh, last day and a half of Hanukkah, may he merit still to see a miracle like Alan Gross of his release. 
And so much of the Jonathan Pollard story has to do with the question of the suspicion of a dual loyalty. No one else who did what he did has been imprisoned for more than four years. The longest sentence anyone received for what he did is four years. But the whole conversation that surrounds him deals with the question of others have of dual loyalty. Can you live in a foreign country as a Jew and, and be accepted that you're loyal both to your Jewish heritage, let's say to Israel and to America? Or in Yosef's case, to Mitzrayim and yet to Yaakov and Canaan. And Yosef is walking that fine line. Yosef's threading that needle of the suspicion of his dual loyalty. Where does his loyalty lie? We'll see that in a moment when the brothers come down and the conversation they have with Paro and the reassurances they're trying to give him. But one of the underlying narratives of our Parsha is a question of how do you assure your host country that you're loyal? That you're, you're able to have dual loyalty. The dual loyalty is not a bad thing, but dual loyalty is indeed a viable possibility. You can be loyal without conflict to, to both. So... Uh, so Yosef's unable to go back and get his father, but he sends his brother. Yaakov gets the news, and of course we have a tradition about how the news is broken to Yaakov, because after 22 years, an old frail man, if Yaakov is, is surprised or shocked by that news, it could have ill effects on him. And what happens when Yosef, when Yaakov rather hears this news? Batechi ruach Yaakov avihem. Yaakov is revived. When Yosef tells them, he says, and, and Yaakov will be revived. Yaakov takes to come down to Mitzrayim with uh, the whole family. And Ve'ela Shmos B'nai Yisrael, these are the names of the Jewish people who descend to Mitzrayim. They come down. Seventy descendants, they arrive in Mitzrayim. What happens, we're on page 262. Yosef now prepares his brothers for the conversation with Paro. Okay, I'm going to introduce you to Paro. You're going to meet the emperor. You're going to meet the president. You're going to meet the prime minister. Here's how the conversation needs to go down. Yosef doesn't take anything for granted, but he's a planner. And he plans this conversation that they're going to have because he wants them to specifically live in where? Goshen. Why Goshen? We studied this in the past as well. You can find it online. Why Goshen? He wants his brothers to be somewhat segregated. Yosef is familiar with the culture of Egypt. He knows its decadence and depravity and licentiousness. And Yosef knows that you join the metropolis, the big city, his brothers who are a group of shepherds, that they're going to be attracted to that way of life. And Yosef, who has persevered, Yosef was raised two sons who maintained and stayed true to their values despite growing up in that environment and culture. Yosef is cautious and wary of his brothers. So he specifically tries to coordinate for them to live in Goshen to be able to have their own Jewish suburb their own Jewish suburb, steeped in Jewish values and Jewish environment and so on, to be able to preserve the ideals of their father. And he's concerned that Paro would deny that and want them to integrate and to assimilate. So Yosef coordinates the conversation and tries to steer the brother's um, move to be able to ultimately land in Goshen. Perak Mem Zion, which is what we're going to study in depth, Yaakov and Paro meet. You have this meeting of these two great the spiritual leader of the world with the physical leader of the world and we'll see their conversation is somewhat disappointing what they actually talk about and then we have Yosef's interpretation of Paro's dream our Parsha ends begins to come true right Yosef had interpreted the dreams he'll have seven fat years years of plenty years of of uh, years of success and then you're going to have seven thin years where there's going to be famine saving the fat years for the thin years 
and that economic cycle begins to kick in and Yosef implements everything that he had told his brothers. Okay, Perak Mem Zayim, page 262. This is what we're going to study together for the remainder of our time this morning. Perak Mem Zayim, Pasuk Aleph, page 262 in the art Stone Chumash. Okay. Vayavo Yosef, Vayagel Leparo Vayomer, Aviv Achai Vitsonamu Vikaram Vacholashu Lahem Bo Meeretz Kinan, Vihinei Beeretz Goshen. Yosef tells Paro, as you know, my fathers and my brother, my father and my brothers, their flock, their cattle, all their livestock, everything they own, it's arrived in Canaan, and they're now living, they're settled in Goshen. And Yosef, out of his 11 brothers, chooses five of them to meet Paro, to introduce to Paro. Why does he introduce only five? Why not more than five? And which five? What were the criteria to determine which of his brothers he was going to introduce to Paro? So as always, Rashi helps us out. Look at Rashi. Somewhat of a shocking Rashi for Rashi to say these things. But he has good basis to say it. Yosef looked at his brothers and chose the five meekest, weakest, nebuch, pale, thin, frail, vulnerable, fragile brothers. Those were the criteria. And why were those the criteria? Because what was Yosef afraid? If Yosef presents to Paro strapping, strong, brave, self-confident, with a good tan, <laughs> young men, what's Paro going to do? I need generals and sergeants and officers. We have an army. He's going to enlist them. He doesn't want Paro to touch his brothers. So what does he do? He presents to Paro. These are my brothers. And he gives these five yeshiva bachrim who are pale and frail and meek. And Paro takes one look at them. Takes one look at them. Says, you're all exempt. Good to go. These are the five. Why is that fascinating? Shimon and Levi? Meek? Frail? Shimon and Levi are the ones who carried out the great plot against Shechem. They wiped out Shechem. They're meek and they're weak. Interesting. When Moshe repeats the names, he doubled the names of the strong one. He didn't the single ones. Zosli Yehuda and the Rashi goes on, and he quotes. This is all from Lashem Bereshit's Rabbah. She agadat Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara bebavla shalanu matzinu. She also shikaf from Moshe. Shmosem heimachalashim. So Rashi quotes that there is a tradition from Bereshit Rabbah, the Medrash which was composed in Eretz Yisrael, and that's that these five were the meek ones. And then there is a competing tradition from Bavel, which is that the opposite. These were not the five, these were the strong ones, which would be more consistent with what we would expect. Um, so again, it's competing traditions, but the criteria of whom Yosef introduced to Paro were that Yosef did not want Paro to enlist to enlist his brothers. The uh, Balaturim says, and this is hinted to in the Pasuk itself, 
says the Balaturim, some of his brothers he took, the Gematria, Ze Hachalashim. The Gematria of, he took some of his brothers is, these are the weak ones. He hand selected the weak ones, and those were the ones that he presented. The Sforno, Ravavadja Sforno, gives a different interpretation. Umiktsei echav lakach, says the Sforno, Kideshiyavin paro medivreyem umeinyanim shehem bale malachas mirat son belvad. He wanted paro to see that they were shepherds. And that's all they were interested in. Because paro might think, well Yosef's very smart. Yosef is incredibly wise. Yosef is amazingly competent. What does that pose to Paro? A threat, right? Okay, so it's one thing that you have somebody who's proven commodity to compliment you and they are competent and wise and sagacious and valuable. What happens when that wise, competent, powerful person brings all of his brothers? What do you begin to fear? You begin to become very paranoid. Maybe he and his brothers are going to attempt a coup. Maybe they're going to try to take over your empire. So Yosef was very concerned. Again, here's a hint to this notion of dual loyalty. Yosef is very concerned to convince Paro, my brothers are Pashida shepherds. You have nothing to worry about. My brothers are simple shepherds of the field. They're weak. They're meek. Relax. You have nothing to fear here. And that's the Sforno's interpretation of what the criteria were. For Rashi, it was that they're weak. He doesn't want them enlisted to the army. For the Sforno, the criteria is that they're shepherds. Just know they're simple shepherds. There is no coup that will be attempted. Pasa Gimel. Vayom aparo alachav. Mama asichem. Vayomru aparo. Roetzon avadecha. Gamanachnu. Gamavoseinu. Paro turned to the brothers and this is the first question. Ma maasechem. What do you do? What's your occupation? Ma maasechem. What's your occupation? And they tell Paro, we're shepherds. We are. And are just like our fathers were. We take after the family. The family uh, business is to be a shepherd. And they continue. Like they answered the question, but they continue nonetheless. And they say, Lagur ba'aretz banu. Ki ein mire latzon asher la'avadecha. Ki chaveda ra'av ba'aretz kenan. Viata yeshvuna ba'adecha ba'aretz goshen. They tell Paro, why are we here? We're not, again, subliminally they're trying to communicate to him that we have no interest in a coup, we're not taken over, there's no rebellion or revolt, Yosef didn't enlist our help, we're here to be shepherds. And why did we come here? Because in Canaan, the famine has struck and the fields are barren. And we can't feed our flock and we can't feed ourselves. So we migrated here. And we've moved here to live in Goshen. And ask the Ramban a question you should be jumping out of your chairs asking as well. And then you are asking. Says the Ramban, I am bewildered by what the brothers answered. How did that answer Paro's question? First of all, Paro never asked, why are you here? He asked, what do you do? They volunteered, why are we here? But even their answer to why are we here is because Canaan is a famine. The fields are barren. There's nothing to eat. Okay, the famine has struck Mitzrayim as well. The famine has hit Egypt. Egypt's also barren. So that doesn't answer why migrate to Egypt. You understand the Ramban's question? Why are the brothers volunteering something they weren't asked? 
And when they do, they say something that's nonsensical. We moved to Egypt because the famine's really bad in Canaan, so we came here. The famine's really bad here too. It's like the people who during the recession moved from New York to Boca. And I would tell them, it, it, the cost of living ain't cheaper in Boca. It's not, it's not, don't think you're going to find the solution here. Recession hit Boca too. So, what is, how does that make sense? Says the Ramban, V'ulai Amru, Kiberetz Kenam, Bnei Kovet HaRa'av, Yochlu HaNashem Eisev HaSadeh, V'lo Yashiru Michliya LeBehema. Aber Beretz Mitzrayim, Yesh Bashever, Yechiyu Ba HaNashem, V'tishir Ba Maramaat. Yitachin Shai Beretz Mitzrayim, Maramaat, Ba'achum Nei HaYurim V'Hagamim. The Ramban gives two answers. First he says, that in Kena'an, the, there is no, there's no food for human consumption. So what are they going to do? Eat the grass in the field. And when they eat the grass in the field, there's nothing left for their livestock. But Mitzrayim, because Yosef had this economic foresight, and had, during the fat years, put savings aside, there were provisions for humans. So the field was available, whatever meat, little there was in the field, was available. So it did make sense. Mitzrayim was not suffering the recession the same way Canaan was because of Yosef's foresight to put the provisions aside. Remember, in terms of the cattle, in terms of the livestock. Number two, he says that Egypt has an advantage that Israel doesn't. We spoke about it on Shabbat Shuba two or three years ago. And what's that advantage? The Nile. The Nile, it has a natural irrigation system, whereas Israel depends and relies exclusively on rain. And that's not a coincidence, it's by design. And in that long Shabbat Shuvah drasha, where we talked about why we have three psukim in the Torah that prohibit us from moving back to Egypt, from living in Egypt. Why Egypt? Because Egypt, the mentality of Egypt is a mentality of wanting to be independent, self-reliant, cutting God out of the equation. And Israel is a land that God's eyes are tamidorish, but God's eyes are always there. That through rain, one needs a relationship with God. Living in Israel itself demands a relationship with God. So Egypt has that advantage as well, and that's why they told Paro, we moved here. Pasakei. Bayomer Paro al Yosef Lemor, Avicha v'yachecha bo'u elecha. Paro now says something which is very obvious. Yosef, your father and your brothers have come to you. Eretz Mitzrayim lefanecha hi b'meita v'aretz hosheves avicha v'esachecha yeshu b'eretz goshen v'miyadata v'yeshbom anshei chayel v'samtam sari mekneh ala sherli says Paro Yosef again stating the obvious Yosef your father and brothers have moved here the land Mitzrayim it's wide open to them it's theirs it's theirs the land of Egypt is before you settle in the best part let them settle in Goshen and if you know, and here's the caveat, the imyadata, if you know the Yeshba Man that among them there is someone who is an Anshechail, there are Anshechail, then please place them the Samtem Saremekne Alashirli. Have them take care of my livestock. What are Anshechail? What does Paro mean in this context? He tells Yosef, if you see qualities among your brothers of being Anshechail, then embrace those qualities and place them in the position of being Sarei Mikneh. What is Anshei Chayam? Says Rashi, If they're good shepherds, if you see them as excellent, excellent shepherds, then please put them in charge of my livestock. You've proven to be a great delegator, Yosef. You've proven to be a great leader. 
if you identify if other leaders, your brothers have this quality of being good shepherds, please put them on me. Let them shepherd my livestock. The Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, sees it differently. Says Rashbam, what does it mean, An Shechayel? And by the way, what was bothering the Rashbam? He doesn't say this, but what was undoubtedly bothering him? What? Yeah, An Shechayel doesn't mean anywhere shepherds. Right? Aisha's Chayel, this Friday night I'm going to sing to my wife. Forget the incredible meal you made. I wish you were a shepherdess. <laughs> Who could find a good shepherdess? Since when does Anshei Chayel mean shepherd? Since when does it mean shepherd? Says the Rashbam, It doesn't mean shepherd. It means you see somebody who's capable, who's competent, who's worthy of greatness, who's worthy of a position of leadership. Srara. Kamo Eishas Chayel at. And then he says, I found a uh, interpretation that supports my grandfather, that it means it's connected to shepherd. But clearly the Rashbam was bothered. Since when do you see Anshe Chayel, right? Yoshua also later with Moshe, when they're trying to form the army. He says, go find Anshe Chayel. It's one of the qualities. We don't say shepherds. Because when does it mean shepherd? So the Rashbam is expanding. What is a shepherd after all? A shepherd is a leader. A shepherd is someone who takes responsibility. A shepherd is somebody who could move a whole flock, can move in the same direction. A shepherd has qualities of leadership. And that's what Paro was saying, according to the Rashbam. If among your brothers are other men of quality and competency and confidence and leadership, then let me know I have positions for them as well. So that's the interaction between Paro and Yosef's brothers. Now here comes the bizarre conversation. Pasuk Zayin. Pasuk Zayin. Vayavei Yosef es Yaakov aviv, vayamideu lefnei paro, vayavarech Yaakov es paro. What happens? Yosef brings his father, vayavei Yosef, Yosef brings Yaakov his father, vayamideu. Translate that word. He places him, he stands him before paro, Vayivarech Yaakov and Yaakov blesses Paro. First of all, why did Yaakov, why did Yosef have to stand his father in front of Paro? His father's old. His father's very frail. Look at the Balaturim. Balaturim says, Paro. We have another tradition, We have another time where somebody is placed before Elazar HaKohen. Shneim Chaserim. In both cases, Vayamideu is Chaser. It's missing a letter. Yaakov is old and frail. He needs a cane or a walker. He needs assistance. Similarly, when Yoshua is brought before Moshe, Yoshua is nervous. He's unable to stand up on his own. So in those two circumstances, that same word, Vayamideu, he was stood, is chaser, it's missing a letter, to tell us that he couldn't stand on his own. He needed to lean, he needed to be somech on someone. So you have the picture. Yaakov is frail. He can't even stand on his own two feet. Yosef goes to the trouble of helping with undoubtedly Yaakov's aid. Yaakov gets dressed. 
they wheel him to Paro. Yosef takes him by the arm or he's got the walker because he wants him to stand before the emperor of Egypt, before Paro, before Paro. And now we're going to have this meeting of these great minds. Yaakov, the consummate theologian. Yaakov, the spiritual giant of the world. Yaakov, Yaakov, the next link in the chain of the Jewish tradition. With Paro, the most powerful political man in the world. The most powerful man in the universe. What do you think they're going to talk about, the two of them? It's the ultimate encounter. What do you think the two of them are going to talk about? What would they discuss? Theology, world politics, the meaning of life, the implications of the famine, oil, loyalty, questions of loyalty, dual loyalty. What would you anticipate they would discuss? The Torah lets us be a fly on the wall of this conversation, but what we find is that the conversation, rather than be lofty, the conversation is quite trite and pedestrian. The conversation is actually, frankly, disappointed. First of all, we didn't translate. I'm sorry. Let's go back. When, when Yosef presents his father to Paro, his father blesses Paro. What does it mean to bless Paro? He said, you should be gebenched. What did he say? Says Rashi, Vayivarech Yaakov, Sheila Shalom, Kiderach Kolon Yemlef Neham Malachim Leprakim. Yaakov gave Paro a Shalom Aleichem, Vesmachstu. Yaakov said to Paro, How are Nice to meet you. How are you? Shalom Aleichem. Nice to meet you. How are you? The Ramban does not like this at all. Says the Ramban, Vayivarech Yaakov is Paro, the Ramban quotes Rashi, He Sheila Shalom, Kiderach Kolon Yemlef Neham Malachim Leprakim. Says Ramban, I think Rashi is wrong. You don't stand in front of the president and say, How are you? How, how, how's everything? How are Michelle and the kids? How are the girls? What's doing? It's not protocol. There's an entire protocol. Right? The whole controversy when LeBron James put his arm around the, the princess, what's her name? <laughs> Violated the protocol. It's all protocol. When you're in front of royalty, or you're in front of the emperor, you're in front of the president, you don't say, hey, how's it going? Sheila Shalom. So the Ramban rejects, the Ramban does not like Rashi. Says the Ramban, it means that Yaakov gave Paro literally a bracha. Yaakov began the conversation by saying, Paro, may you be blessed with great wealth and nachas from the kinder and good health and longevity. May you sit on your throne for many years. May your kingdom be successful and strong. Like it says in Malachim Aleph, in an encounter with David HaMelech, what was said, may King David live forever. At the end of this conversation, we're going to analyze momentarily, Yaakov exits the conversation the way he began, by again giving a blessing. What was the blessing Yaakov gave at the end of the conversation, says the Ramban? 
may the Nile always rise and be high. Again, the Nile is the irrigation system. In another way of saying, may the stock market go higher and higher and higher. That's the bracha. So Rashi says, what was the bracha? Shalom Aleichem. The Ramban says, no, what was the bracha? He literally gave a bracha. He gave a bracha when he began the conversation with Paro, and he gave a bracha when he ended the conversation. And what is this conversation that we've built up? What is this conversation? Paro says to Yaakov, you ready? The greatest political leader in the world says to the greatest spiritual leader in the world in this incredible encounter, and this is the dialogue. Wow, you look old. How old are you? How old are you, old man? And what is Yaakov's answer? The days of the years of my travels have been 130 years. I'm 130. Few and bad have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not reached the lifespan of my forefathers in terms of their travels. Okay, then what? That's it. Vayvarech Yaakov is paro, paro. Yaakov gives him a bracha again, and he exits. That's their conversation. That's the conversation. You have a moment in the Oval Office, and how does the conversation go? Wow. Hey, Rabbi, old man, how, you look old. How old are you? I'm 130, but oh, I've had a miserable life. Oh, am I tired? Oh, am I krechzing? Oh, does this hurt? Oh, has it been hard? Oh, is it rough? All I do is go to doctors all day and everything. Oh, is it? I'm 130, and I'm not even the age yet of my fourth. I got more years to live, and it's miserable. All right, anyway, it was nice to meet you. God should bless you. Have a good life. This is the conversation. What in the world is going on? This is the conversation. Wow. Wow. Says this Forno. Yeah, this is the conversation. Paro was taken aback by Yaakov's age. Tama, says this Forno. Nobody reached this old age of Yaakov. Paro is asking this question. Look at the Ramban. Uh, I'm sorry, where's the Ramban? Yeah. Look at Pasuk Tess. In the Ramban. Lo yadati tam azakin avinu. Ma musr hu shi yisonein el ha-melech. What was Yaakov doing, asked the Ramban? What value was there to take his brief moment before the most powerful man in the world to kvetch? She yisonein el ha-melech. Why are you kvetching to the king? And what did you add by saying, I haven't reached the age of my forefathers? Maybe you'll live longer. But what are you adding? Menira Lee says the Ramban, Yaakov looked old. Yaakov appeared very old. Yaakov 
In Paro's time in Egypt, what do you think the lifespan was? What do you think the life expectancy was? It wasn't very long. And here you have a man 130 years old. That's old. However you measure it, that's old. So Paro, maybe they had intended about talking about something else. Maybe they intended about having a most meaningful and lofty conversation. But Paro was struck by Yaakov's age and can't help but ask. Can't help but ask. I've never seen such an old man in all of my years on the throne. So Yaakov answers, I'm 130, if you must know. But don't be amazed. You think this is remarkable? You think this is a Guinness World Record? I'm not even the age of my forefathers. So says Yaakov, I'm not even the age of my forefathers. Why do I look so old? Because my life has been filled with many, many challenges. My life has been filled on the run. I had to lie. I've been lied to. I've been manipulated. I lived in the home of love. My life has been very... My son was 22 years. Thought he was dead. I've had a rough life. I look old. And that's the conversation. So for the Ramban, for the Svorno, for the Rashbam, what's going on in this conversation is that Paro says to him, you look old. And Yaakov says, I am old. I'm not nearly as old as my forefathers, so don't be so taken as if this was a record, but I've had a rough life. But that's very unsatisfying, right? Really, Yaakov didn't take greater advantage of this moment to have a conversation. So I want to share with you a few interpretations. One, one I saw, is the following suggestion based on the Medrash. The Yaakov understood that his descendants were destined to live in Mitzrayim. And Yaakov was trying to communicate a message um, implicitly to Paro. A message he didn't have the courage or perhaps wasn't appropriate to say explicitly. But he wanted to get across a message. And what was that message? The message was that my forefathers were great men. Powerful men. Avram was rich and prominent and powerful. And yet I've had a difficult life. So don't think right now, Paro, that your power and your wealth means that it cannot be taken away from you. Don't think that your children and grandchildren won't be vulnerable like I am. Even though I come from an ancestry of great wealth and great power. And why was Yaakov planting that idea in Paro's mind? Because who is destined to live in Egypt? His children. The Medrash says that Yaakov knew through prophecy that we would spend time in Egypt. We would become a nation in Egypt. And he was trying to plant in Paro's head that don't exploit your power to take advantage or cause suffering to others. Be kind and be compassionate and be a, a just and righteous leader. Because I descend from someone who had wealth and power and life works in cycles. And I've had a difficult life. You may have a difficult life. What goes around comes around. So be careful how you behave. I thought that was a very interesting, a very interesting approach. The Ksav um, Kabbalah. Ksav Yeah, Rabbi Fox. 
Right. Right. Oh. Oh, good. Right. Excellent. Um, one of the Mephoshim says that. The Kliyakar. Rabbi Fox's suggestion appears in the Kliyakar. Good, so we'll give that as the second suggestion. What's going on in this conversation? The Kliyakar says something beneath the surface. From the moment Yaakov entered Egypt... All of a sudden, the stock market kept going higher and higher. The Nile was rising. As you can imagine, Paro was very excited to hear the economy is doing well. Every ruler is judged by his people based on the economy. So Paro can't wait to meet this Yaakov because he says, as long as this Yaakov lives in Egypt, in his merit, the Nile will rise, the economy will thrive, and I'm golden, I'm good to go. What happens? Paro takes one look at Yaakov, says the Kliyakar, and says, Oh boy. Oh no. The market's going to crash tomorrow. This guy's gonna, he's not going to make it through the day. That's not me, that's the Kliyakar literally. Hayom o machar yamus. This old man, he's not going to live through the day. The market's going to crash. It's all over. The economy's going to plummet. He takes one look at this old man and he says, What are my advisors so happy about? Why are they so excited about the future? The bright future with Yaakov living in Egypt. When he dies, the economy's going to go back down. The Nile's going to re- re- retreat. Not retreat, what's the word? Recede. Recede, thank you. So Paul takes one look at this old man, he says, Oh my God, how, how old are you? How much longer we have you around? Yaakov says, don't worry. I know I look old, but it's a result of the difficult life I've had. I have a lot more time. I haven't even reached the age of my forefathers. I got time. You're good to go. I'm good to go. Don't worry. Don't worry. My father lived to 180. So don't worry, Paro. We got 50 more years of the economy doing well. So that's what's going on. Says the Kliyakar. It's not as, as uh, superficial a conversation as it seems. We said, what do you mean? These two great minds get together. They don't talk about the economy, theology, loyalty, world history. And the answer is they did. They talked about the economy. Paro took one look at him and said, uh-oh, there goes the economy. To which Yaakov replied, don't worry. The economy is going to be just fine. I may look old, but I'm younger than I look. I look old because I've had such a difficult, such a difficult life. Yes? Loyal to God. Oh, beautiful. Good. 
Good. So that's the third interpretation. Hamis and I will add mine. I gave this as a drusha many years ago. That I wanted to suggest you can interpret this as follows. You can interpret this as follows. That they were having a theological conversation. And the theological conversation is, why do bad things happen to good people? How is that the conversation going on? I want to suggest that Paro expects to see in Yaakov, after everything he's heard, Yosef undoubtedly all these years talked about his father, right? My father's brilliant and wise and successful, and my father has shaped and molded me into who I am. And Yaakov, Paro expects to meet this man and to see a strapping, successful, strong, bold person. And he meets Yaakov, and what does Yaakov say to him? I want you to know my life's been very difficult. And what is Yaakov telling him? Hami and I want to suggest. What Yaakov is telling him is, don't think that believing in God, subscribing to God, being loyal to God means life will be smooth sailing. Don't think it means life will be smooth sailing. Because I have been unwaveringly and unequivocally loyal to God and my life's been very hard and it has not shaken my faith at all. Because that's what faith is. It's a mistake in outreach. I remember a number of years ago meeting with a woman who had certain challenges in her life. She was a Balash Tshuva. And she said to me, I don't understand. The rabbi who was Makari of me made me believe that if I keep Shabbos and kosher, if I'm an observant Jew, then God's going to give me blessing. Why am I struggling to have a child? I thought everything goes smoothly. I just need to be religious. And I said, you need to sue that rabbi for malpractice. I told her, you know, the rabbi should, should lose his smicha. That is absolute malpractice. To, to ever suggest that there is a correlation in this world between our lifestyle, our virtues, our merits, our observance, and everything will be smooth sailing, is not what Torah is about. The word Torah, and this is appropriate for Hanukkah, I'm sorry, give me two more minutes, but the word Torah comes from the word or. Gemara Megillah Darshan, Oruzu Torah. Torah means light, it illuminates. What does a light do? If I want to get from here to that door, and it's pitch black in here, I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to trip over the chair and the table and stub my toe, and it's going to be very difficult to get to the door. If I turn the light on, does turning the light on remove all the furniture? What does turning the light on allow me to do? It allows me to see and navigate my way through. Torah does not eliminate the obstacles. Torah does not eliminate the challenges. But turning on a light, Hanukkah, turning on a light, Orazu Torah, embracing Torah illuminates my life and empowers me to navigate the challenges I'll have. Being observant doesn't mean you won't have infertility or struggle to find your spouse or, or be diagnosed with illness or thrive financially. Being observant doesn't make any of those promises. The only promise Torah makes is it will illuminate your life to enable and empower you to be able to navigate those challenges more than you'd be able to navigate without Torah. So perhaps that's what Yaakov's telling Paro. Yes, I've been faithful to God, but that does not automatically translate to a life of smooth sailing and happiness and bliss. My life has had its challenges and I've been faithful nonetheless. That was number three. Number four, Rav Yaakov Mecklenburg, in the 19th century, Germany, was the Rav of Königsberg. So Rav Yaakov Mecklenburg in his Ksave Kabbalah, look it up, Rav Yaakov Mecklenburg says that that's not what's going on. This is an incredible shot. Rav Yaakov Mecklenburg says, you know what the conversation between Yaakov and Paro is? He phrases it, Dvarim shel Mabikach. 
how do you translate Dvarim Shalmabekach? Small talk. Yaakov and Paro are indeed making small talk. And he develops a much deeper idea, but the Ksava Kabbalah basically says that don't think that there's no value sometimes to making small talk. Small talk also has value. What's the value of small talk? If you only have the ability to talk to people when there's a tachlis, it means you don't actually care about the relationship, you care about achieving the tachlis of any given conversation. But if you're able to engage in small talk, then you actually care about people. So what kind of affirms your commitment to a relationship is your capacity to shoot the breeze, to have small talk. If every conversation is tachlis, you need information or you need to plan or and so on, then you're incapable of, of relationships. The Mishnah in Perkei says that there are memchas, there are 48 ways that Torah is acquired. And one of those 48 ways is miyut sicha. Miyut sicha. Miyut sicha is normally translated as don't engage in idle chatter. You want to acquire Torah? Have your conversations be meaningful. But there's one interpretation I saw that says no, miyut sicha means the opposite. One of the ways the Torah is acquired is small talk. Be capable of small talk. That's how you build relationships. That's how you gain wisdom. That's how you acquire friends. And that's how you learn. Small talk. When you leave your comfort zone and make, and make small talk. Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai says, Afilu nachri shebeshuk. Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai greeted everybody. He was capable of exhibiting small talk. So the Ksavar Kabbalah, Rabbi Yaakov Metlenberg says, what's the conversation between Yaakov and Paro? Small talk. He got this expression from a Gemara in Shabbos. That, You're allowed to have conversations of small talk on Shabbos. Lastly, number five. Lastly, 30 more seconds. Lastly, is Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch has a last great interpretation which shows you that this conversation is not simply trite or pedestrian, but this is a significant conversation like we would expect between Yaakov and Paro. Writes refresh. I'm reading to you from his a translation of his commentary. His commentary was in German. Since I can't read German, and you wouldn't understand it if I did, I'll read to you in his English translation. In his reply, um, sorry, back. Still today, royalty, whose time naturally is extremely precious at audiences, as a rule, just throw out a few short words or inquiries, the replies to which they are in reality entirely different. But it must be a rare indeed for a king to have understood to secure more delicacy in a few interrogative words than Paro did here. And even more seldom has the person addressed expressed more wisdom in a short reply than Yaakov did here. Meaning, Refresh is saying that Paro was saying more than meets the eye in his question, and Yaakov was saying more than meets the eye in the answer he gave. When one counts by years, one does not reckon any more of the days. It is only with a few select people that each day is full of importance and is considered by them as having a special meaning. Right? The older you get, the less the days matter and you begin to count the years. A really true human being does not live years, but days. Similarly, in great Psalm of Moshe, in which the whole history of the world passes by as in a dream, as says at the end, if even a thousand years of world history means no more than a minute, then a day means nothing. Only there where the Torah has entered and the people's activities are decided by and dedicated to the service of Hashem do people live daily, 
Each day they are strong. Each day they accomplish something, make progress, undisturbed by what tomorrow may bring. Each such day is reckoned up by God, and no day is lost. Limnos yamenu kein hoda. Teach us to count our days, it says in Tehillim. Thus Paro says, how many days have you lived in the years of your life? Paro was not asking, says Rafersh, new old frail man, how old are you? Is this a world record or something? You look like you're going to plot any moment. That's not what Paro was asking him. What was Paro asking? How many days have there been in the years of your life? And in putting the question, how old are you, in these words, he reveals the deep impression which the whole appearance and dignified behavior of Yaakov had made on him. What he was saying is, you look like a person who has had quality in your life. You don't only have years, but you've made the days count. You've made the days count. A person could live a hundred years, but have very few days in those hundred years. And God forbid a person can die at a very young age, but have lived many, many, many full days. And that's the conversation that was going on. In his reply, Refersh continues, Yaakov differentiates between living and existing. You ask after the days of the years of my life, I've not lived much. I've sojourned on earth during 130 years. The days of the years that I can really call my life were in reality only few, and they were ra'im. They were bittersweet, and those most full of worry. I had the mission of doing the duties of unhappiness and unhappiness. The contents of my life can in no way be compared to the contents of the lives of my fathers. They lived more every day of existence here below was living, and they had to carry out the mission of their lives under cheerful conditions. This was no complaint against the shortness of his life, but modesty in looking back at the moral worth of the life he had lived. Yaakov is replying with modesty, my days have been full, but they're nothing compared to my forefathers. So there's a conversation much more here than just how old are you, but it's how many days, yemei shnei, the days of your years. And there's a very powerful message to all of us, which is not just to celebrate our birthdays, not just to mark the milestones of the years, I turned another major milestone, but to look at each of the days within those years and to make sure that those days continue to indeed count. Have a fantastic week and a happy Hanukkah.